Well, we're continuing our series in, on work this morning, and over the last couple of weeks, we've kind of set the parameters of work the blessing and work the curse. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the purpose of work. Since the, uh, the 2008 financial crash, or whatever you want to call it, there have been countless investigations into what went wrong. And so if you have Netflix, you've probably seen, I mean, I don't understand how it could be a bad financial thing because it's developed so many new documentarian filmmakers. Uh, But journalists and, and filmmakers and all sorts of people have been trying to figure out, like, what exactly happened and how could it have been avoided and how could we maybe do things differently in the future? And interestingly enough, no one really agrees with anyone on any of those things. Uh, except for except for one basic thing about about what actually happened, and the question that people have been asking themselves as this kind of stunning picture has emerged is what's shifted in our in our corporate life, because it it seems very clear that that we as individuals and communities have stopped asking questions about our work in terms of the broader impact. And what people found is they started to kind of interview people that were sort of at the helm of some of these giant financial institutions that were making some really pretty wild decisions is that they weren't really concerned with how it was impacting other people so much as what they were concerned with how it was going to impact their own bottom line. And obviously, this, this shouldn't have to be said, but I'm going to say it, obviously this is not true of everyone. And that sort of self-centeredness is definitely not true of everyone in the financial industry. But there's sort of this weird corporate crisis of character that we're having in our world. And it's not really anything new. In fact, it's just kind of a new telling of the same old story, which is that we want to be in charge of our destiny and we are willing to do anything to secure it. Now this morning, we're going to sort of be cobbling together all of our scripture readings. So I'm not really using that Old Testament text as the, as the primary text. We're going to be kind of piecing together all of them. And in a way, uh, as we try to understand this positive understanding of the purpose of work, in a way, I'm, I'm hoping to take us on a teleological train ride. So we're, we're trying to get to the, the ultimate purpose and destination of, of why we should do work. But just like on a train ride, you have to have stops along the way in order to get to your final destination. And so what I want you to, to understand is that the stops along the way are, are very, very important. They might not be the ultimate thing, but they're still important. So we're going to spend some time talking about those things. But before we, we get there, I just want to highlight quickly a couple of theological premises that are involved in a discussion like this that are sort of happening in the background. So just really quickly, because when we talk about work, we're talking about what? The the thing that consumes most of our lives. Whether you work inside the home or outside of it, most of us spend most of our waking hours working. And as such, this discussion of work is really getting at what we think it means to live a good life, which is the question that all people have always asked. What does it mean to have a good life? And within the church, we ask that question a little bit differently. We ask it this way, how do we live Christianly? And the shorthand answer for that, of course, from Scripture, is to live our lives in loving God with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So that's number one, that the way we live Christianly is to love God first and foremost and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The second theological premise is that we believe here that, that God is the creator and sustainer of the entire universe, 
But he is the one that allows things to continue living and happening and working as they should. But we also believe that, that generally, in God's provision for his creation, he uses means. And by that, I mean that, that God, by virtue of being God, could just grow steak sandwiches on the Willamette River. And that would be amazing. Uh, but he doesn't, does he? He, he uses means, and so he uses people to develop different areas of the world in order to feed one another, to provide shelter for one another, and to provide basically what it is, and this is what we talked about at the very beginning of this series, that, that our work is sort of the mask of God, is that it's through human work that God actually has providential care over his creation. So with that in the background, we're going to be looking at a positive vision of work under the heading of service. Serve the work, serve your neighbor, and serve God. Dorothy Sayers, who I've quoted in your bulletin, was a writer during the first half of the last century who developed this, this deep fascination with attitudes toward work because she, she started writing around the First World War and then through the peacetime and then the Second World War as well. And so she saw these cataclysmic shifts happening in her world. And in her essay, Why Work?, she says this, If work is to find its right place in the world, it is the duty of the church to see to it that the work serves God and that the worker serves the work. The idea of serving the work is an important one, and not least because it keeps us from viewing work simply as a means for our own personal gain or our own personal fulfillment. It's not just about a a paycheck. Serving the work has to be the first stop in our train trip. Because without it, our service to our neighbors and our service to God is actually deeply hindered if we don't understand what service to the work itself really is. So Portland is a city that, that loves its food and drink, don't we? Which is why my, my weight just kind of does this as I kind of discover new restaurants all the time. We have a lot of very creative, very hardworking chefs and, and, and bartenders. I, what are they called now? Mixologists or something? We have all these terms. So let's just say that it's date night. You've got your fella or your gal. You've picked the restaurant. You, you know that this is the one. Everyone's been talking about it, and you've got a reservation, and you've read the reviews. You, you've checked out the menu. Your mouth is already watering. You are ready to have... Just an incredible experience. But let's just say that just for this one night, I mean, this restaurant has just been humming along like crazy, but just this one night, the chef decides she would rather maximize profits than send out the best food. Perhaps the meat is expired or maybe the pasta is overcooked. At best, you have a bad meal, maybe even food poisoning. But, but if we let that ripple out, maybe it's not the chef. Maybe it's the farmer. Maybe the farmer that provides the food just decided one day that he would rather maximize his profits or just not get up or whatever it is to give the very best that he could to this restaurant. Maybe it's the server who's standing over there in the corner even though he sees all your glasses are empty but he's just texting on his cell phone instead of attending to your table. Or what if the team that none of us have ever seen before that's in charge of cleaning the restaurant at night just didn't bother to wipe off the grease from the table and chairs. How you serve or how you fail to serve the work reveals your true feelings about the purpose of work 
and how you see your role in the context of community. The way that you serve or fail to serve the work reveals what you think work is really about. And if you think that it is just about a means to a paycheck or a means to success or personal fulfillment, you are going to fail to serve the work rightly. In fact, you may find that the work becomes a taskmaster over you. Some of you have probably seen or at least heard of the the show TV Rock, which was a TV show on NBC about a TV show on NBC. Uh, don't worry about it. If you haven't seen it, it's, it's one of those meta things, a show within a show. And it's got these great characters because it, it starts with the, the, this team of writers, but then there's also the vice president of television himself, Jack Donaghy. I mean, he's the highest that you can possibly get except for one other guy. But then it goes all the way down to like the servants of the servants, Kenneth the page. Kenneth Parcell is this hick from Georgia who basically works for nothing. And he does anything and everything that these self-focused celebrities ask of him. And they come up with some amazing things for him to do. And it's, it's just very, very debasing to watch Kenneth. But there's this episode where Jack, the CEO character, as part of a corporate strategy, has to be Kenneth's assistant for the day and, and discover, like, what is it that even the lowest level employees are doing and how can I, you know, help to manage them better? And so he has to do whatever Kenneth does and he has to say whatever Kenneth tells, or has to do whatever Kenneth tells him to do as well. And Jack, halfway through the day, is just overwhelmed at how horribly Kenneth is treated, at how degrading and awful his work is. And he finally asks him, Kenneth, how can you stand this sort of thing? I mean, don't you have any plans for the future? Don't you want to, you know, get out of this job into something better? And Kenneth basically responds, well, why would I, what, what could be better? I'm working in television, as if he's the one starring on TV. Throughout the series, it's revealed that, that Jack, the CEO type, sees everyone and everything through the lens of money, through the lens of profit, whereas Kenneth sees everyone, even the CEO type, as his absolute best friend in the world. Now, these caricatures will obviously break down because there is nothing whatsoever wrong with turning a profit. In fact, I would think that it's probably rather important. And doing degrading work simply because you've deluded yourself into thinking that everyone around you is your best friend is obviously not healthy. And what we see in the characters of Jack and Kenneth is that they're both searching for salvation in ways that many of us try to search for salvation in our work, either through success and personal gain or through thinking that everyone around us is going to be our best friend if we just do enough for them. If we view work in one of these means, we have not grasped the scriptural idea of work. In our Old Testament reading, God tells Moses that he has empowered, personally empowered craftsmen to build his temple. But the thing that's so fascinating is that it's not as if God just picked two people who had never done that kind of work ever before and said, I'm going to just magically make you really good at something. No, he chose people that had given their lives daily over to serving the work and doing it well. And what we see is that the Spirit is actually at work in our dailiness. As we commit ourselves to just doing good work, the Holy Spirit is there working through us. Dorothy Sayers, who I've already quoted a couple times now, it, I, I try not to do longer quotes, but have you guys ever just read something where you're like, well, I can't possibly say that any better, so we should just say it how she said it. But she talks about this idea that, that the habit of thinking about work 
as just a means to a paycheck is so ingrained in our thinking that we have started asking all the wrong questions. She says instead that we should ask of an enterprise, not will it pay, but is it good? Of a person, not what does he make, but what is his work worth? Of goods and services, not can we induce people to buy them, but are they useful things made well? Of employment, not how much a week will it pay, but will it exercise my faculties to the utmost? Even the shareholders, she says, let's just say they're in a brewing company. They would astonish the directorate by arising at shareholders' meetings and demanding to know, not merely where the profits go or what dividends are to be paid, not merely whether the workers' wages are sufficient and the conditions of labor satisfactory, but loudly and with a proper sense of personal responsibility, what goes into the beer? That's what the shareholders should be asking. She tells us that a building must be good architecture before it can be a good church that a painting must be well-painted before it can be a good sacred picture. That is to say, work must be good before it can be considered God's work. When we begin with serving the work rather than ourselves and doing the best that we can at what's in front of us, it's ultimately going to be the best way that we can actually serve our neighbor and serve God. Serving our neighbor is partly what Paul is getting at in his letter to the Ephesians when he tells them that the thief should steal no longer but work with his hands. But what's the reason that Paul gives? Not simply so that he would stop being a thief and not even simply so that he could provide something for himself, but so that he can provide something for others who may have need. But serving our neighbor goes beyond just connective feel-goodery because what Paul is basing his statements there on is, is this very broad scriptural idea and it's getting to the very core of reality which is that every person we encounter is made in the image of God. Every person we encounter is made in the image of God. So if you're a teacher or a tutor, you're not just doing lesson plans to keep the administration off your back. You're not just fulfilling your days for a paycheck. You are shaping the minds and imaginations of children made in the image of God. If you're a stay-at-home parent, you're, you're not just cleaning toilets or folding laundry or keeping your kids occupied so that if someone happened to wander into your house, they would think well of you. You're, you're creating a space of peace and order for your family, for your friends and your neighbors, and you're encountering the image of God in your children every time you read a book to them. Every time you hold them when they cry. If you're a nurse or a doctor or a therapist, you're not just spending your days navigating a complex political system. You are bringing healing and wholeness to God's creatures, to creatures that God has declared are valuable and in his image. If you're an entrepreneur, an office manager, if you help develop presentations or build roads, if you're in insurance, finance, marketing, the arts, if you nanny or clean houses, you are contributing to the wellness and liveliness of other people who are made in God's image. The Christian idea of work goes so much further than simply asking, am I nice to my coworkers? That's an important question. But that's not as far as it goes. And it's not even immediately consumed with, is there spiritual value to this? Though that's not a wrong question either. But when we realize that God himself is a worker, that he has created the universe and called it good, and that he created human beings to be his ambassadors, to be his icons in the world, then the question that we have to ask ourselves about our work every single day is this, 
Is my work making people more truly human? God has created people in his image. When we embrace that identity as being truly human, that is exactly what Jesus has called us to in himself. So the question we have to ask ourselves in our work is, is my work making the people around me more truly human? And if you still have questions about what kind of work is more important or less important, more Christian or less Christian, just simply remember, Jesus worked as a carpenter for far longer than he worked as a preacher. We need farmers to grow food for us. But farmers need teachers to teach their children, and teachers need craftsmen to build their classrooms and desks, and craftsmen need health insurance written up by an office employee, and an office employee needs a clean environment in which to work made possible by a janitor, and janitor needs a van to haul his equipment in, and on and on. We are inextricably linked to one another in our work, and when we serve the work so that we do our absolute best, we are serving our neighbors and we are acknowledging the image of God in them and we are helping them to be more fully human, to engage in what God has called them to do by engaging in our own callings. We are so used to looking out in our world and seeing the people around us as customers or coworkers, competition or servants, rather than God's masterpieces people in which his image resides. But when we, when we are changed by the gospel and we begin to see ourselves as made in the image of God and see our neighbor and even perhaps our enemies as made in the image of God, that's when we can begin to serve God in our work. As we saw in our gospel reading, Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the people will answer him, When did any of that happen? And he replies, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. What that gospel passage reveals to us is that God has linked himself with his people in such a way that when we do our work in service to our neighbors, we are actually doing it in service to him in a very, very real way because Jesus has become the servant of all. And what the New Testament writers just continually are confounded and excited by is that his church is now his body. And so when we do work for people around us, we are truly doing it for him. But the only way, the only way that we can truly serve the work without it becoming our taskmaster, the only way that we can truly serve our neighbors without expecting something back, and the only way we can actually serve God is if we have been set free from our old assumptions, set free from our old way of life. And it's only through the work of Jesus that that freedom comes. Only when we see that Jesus is the God who has linked himself to his people inextricably, that he encounters death and sadness and sorrow for our sakes, and that in that work he's setting us free, that's the only way that we can achieve this positive vision of work. I mean, imagine. Imagine God the Father and God the Son sitting down to talk about the job description, about what was going to await him. And imagine Jesus asking the kinds of questions that we ask about our jobs. Well, how much vacation time is there? 
What's the salary? Are there any bonuses? Jesus' work on the cross is not just an example for us to aspire to. There are things that are exemplary in it for us. But it is the very thing that sets us free from the prison house of building our own identities on work and success and money. What you heard me say last week ties in directly with this this morning is that you are loved and valued by God regardless of your success or failure in work. And it is only in that love It is only in that full acceptance that we are able to serve the work in a way that serves our neighbor and serves God rather than ourselves. As we come to the table in a moment, I invite you to experience the work and service of Jesus to you. Let the meal pull you deeper into the life of God and deeper into the life of the world as we then go out in service to those around us, realizing that even in the smallest acts of love, we are serving God himself. Let's pray together.